the call here by Solomon in Proverbs 3 is a call to a spirit or a, a posture of humility. It's recognizing that we have a need, that, that our wisdom isn't good enough, that in order to do this the way God wants us to do it, we need help. Throughout the Bible, we see people assuming all the time that they know better. We see them assuming that they know it all. And through the pages of the scriptures, we actually find out that it's God's people that do this. If you read the Old Testament, you, we, could, we could list many examples of the Israelites doing this very thing, of being wise in their own eyes. Just, just a couple, Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain getting the, the Ten Commandments from God. The Israelites are at the bottom of the mountain. Moses has been gone for a while, and so they take matters into their own hands. They say, we don't know what happened to this Moses, so uh, we're going to do something else. We're going to make a golden calf. We're going to revert to our days in, in, in Egypt, our days in bondage, remembering that there was certainly idolatry happening there, and we're going to make for ourselves an idol to represent God. We see how that didn't work out so well. First Samuel verse chapter 8, just sometime later, years and years, the Israelites are looking around at the other nations, and they see that their nation is different than the other nations. And one of the ways that they're different is that they don't have a, a, a person as a king, a human. They don't have a man as a king over their, their people. And they say to Samuel, we want a king like everybody else. Samuel's very confused by this. The, the very distinction of the people of God is that they don't have a human king, that God is their king. That's the point. That's the distinction. And yet in their wisdom, they look around and say, that's what we want. Samuel says to God, what, what do you want me to do? God says, appoint for them a king. And they have appointed for them King Saul, who several chapters later, we find him being wise in his own eyes not waiting for Samuel to come and make the sacrifices in chapter 13, and he unlawfully makes the sacrifices. Samuel comes and says, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? He says, well, I didn't think you were coming. I needed to do it. That's what I did. In that moment, Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly. God, God would have kept the cup. God would have establish the kingdom over Israel, but now the kingdom shall, shall not continue through Saul, that, that God has chosen someone else. He sought a man after his own heart, who we come to know as King David. Being wise in your own eyes is not just something that those people did back then. It's not just something that, that other people do that we look at and say, I can't believe those people. Maybe a better question as we hear these stories, as we hear this principle, we start to ask ourselves, in what ways are we being wise in our own eyes? In what ways are we assuming that we know? Now, most of us don't want to admit that, especially in a room like this, right? That's a bad thing to admit, that, that you are prideful or that you are uh, leaning on your own understanding. But listen, every time, every time you sin, every time I sin, that is what we are doing. We are saying to God, I, I know better than you. This is what I want. This is what I think I should have. I'm going to take it. That's pride. 
Are there things that you want a certain way, regardless of the will of God? Are there things in your life that you're willing to, to sin, to keep, to have, to, to hide? In what ways are you leaning on, relying on, or trusting in your own understanding as you make decisions in this life? These are all self-inspecting questions. Self-reflection is, is necessary here for us to be honest. God already knows the answers to all those things, doesn't he? So there's no, no, no need to, um, to lie to ourselves or try to lie to God, which is impossible. So ask the questions. Solomon is, is rooting what he's about to say in this, un, this idea of not being wise in your own eyes, not trusting yourself alone, not leaning on your own understanding. That's the ground in which these two things are planted. Solomon then moves to what we're going to call two components of trust, and they are fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What do you fear? What do you fear? I, I have a few fears. If, if you know me, you probably already know that. Um, but I have the capacity. <clears throat> I'm not sure where this comes from. I have the capacity to anticipate the worst possible outcome of any given situation in life. So I'm a ball of fun to live with, right? My kids are just have so much joy in their life as I'm paranoid about everything that happens. Uh, but for one thing is, is heights. I have, a, I have a, a problem with heights. I'm very fearful of heights. I'm actually so fearful of heights that I'm fearful of you being okay with heights. Really. Uh, my wife tried to put Christmas lights on her house. I, cu I couldn't let it happen. It went, and she got up on the roof. I'm like, I can't do this. Do what? I'm standing on the ground, right? I can't do it. I have a fear of heights, so much so that, that I, I get really, really, really nervous, right? That, that's a fear for me. That's a problem. So when someone says, what do you fear? That's something that I fear. In some ways, it's, it's a little bit of a, a controlling fear, but enough about me. You guys can psychoanalyze me later. More about you. So I did a Google search this week um, to, to try to find out kind of what, what are other fears that people might have. And my, my Google search led me to um, uh, a blog post called The Top 10 Phobias of All Time. And supposedly this has been updated this year. I'll just give you the top five. And number five is fear of dogs, sinophobia. And uh, again, if you know me, I, I think I kind of relate with this too, but... Uh, 36% of people who deal with this uh, actually seek treatment. And those people, majority of those people are afraid of cats as well. Uh, number four, uh, fear of open or crowded spaces. Maybe you can relate with some of these. Number three, fear of heights. 10% uh, of the U.S. citizens have a fear of heights. So I guess I have some company. Number two, uh, fear of snakes. Fear of snakes. Maybe some of you, uh, sometimes I think people uh, appreciate living in the north because of uh, the lack of things of that nature. Uh, but one third of the, the human population, one third of the human population, not U.S., human population has a fear of snakes. That's 2.5 billion people have a fear of snakes. And the number one fear, according to this list, is the fear of spiders, and 30.5% of the people who fear that actually live in the United States. Now, those are just some of the fears. 
And maybe for some of us, uh, we relate with that. Maybe some of you uh, hear some of those things and say, uh, yeah, that's me, uh, as, as I have uh, admitted to you this morning already. Um, but, but some of you might say, well, my, my fear wasn't listed on that. I don't have any of those fears. But in some way, to some degree, all of us have a fear of some nature. All of us have something that, that's governing us, something that's underlying, something that, that we're, we're concerned about. One philosopher has suggested this. To conquer fear is the beginning of wisdom. Say that again. To conquer fear is the beginning of wisdom. Now, if, if you know your Bible, you know that there's, there's some problems with that. Um, that. That actually is not what the Bible says. The Bible says something very different. The Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is not found in conquering fear. It's not found in the absence of fear but it's found in the appropriate object to be feared and an appropriate definition of fear. Just two chapters back, Solomon says this very thing when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This idea of fear or fearing the Lord is an emphasis throughout the book of Proverbs. 18 references in 14 different chapters of this book show us that it's a clear emphasis. But it's not only an emphasis in Proverbs, it's an emphasis throughout the Bible. But we must understand fear rightly. The fear of God that we're talking about is not like my fear of heights. It's not the same thing. That's not the kind of fear that we're talking about. This biblical godly fear could be better understood as saying an affectionate reverence a respect or an awe, a veneration. It is worship. It's not terror. It is, it is the idea, if you can imagine, a healthy relationship between a child and a father. That the father has, has an authority and has a care for this child, and the child rightly respects that father. That child rightly understands the, what that father can do, what that father will do, Practically, it's being aligned with God's intentions. When, when we live in, in fear of the Lord, we are in line with God, what God wants. Here, the fear of the Lord is put in opposition to being wise in your own eyes. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. These are op opposites. Pastor Ray Ortland says, the more you fear the Lord, the less you will fear man. The, the reverse of that is true too, though. The less you fear the Lord, the more you will fear man. Fear of man and issues that are related to it control far too many Christians. We care far too much what people think of us. We care far too much of the opinion or the judgment of other people. Jesus identifies this in Matthew chapter 10 when he says... Don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't, don't be afraid of someone who can just kill you. Now, we kind of think, well, maybe I should be afraid of that. But Jesus, Jesus takes it to a different level. He says, don't fear someone who can just kill your body. Fear the one who can kill your body and throw your soul in hell. Like, get your priorities right. See this more rightly. See man as what he is, a man. And see God for who he is. Someone greater. Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, which I highly recommend to you, says that we do not have to fear man because God is glorious. 
And when we see God as glorious, we see man for what he is. Imagine God in his glory, as much as your human mind can understand that, standing beside or behind your fears and then say, what of it now? Who who do I fear now? What we mean is, is when we see God rightly, we see man rightly. The glory of God defangs the fear of man. It, It takes the venom right out of it. The glory of God is the antidote of the fear of man. Chester goes on to say that that when we remind ourselves of God's glory, our fear of others is replaced by a trust in God. So the fear of God is a component of trusting God, as we see here in Proverbs 3. So the question for you this morning is, who do you fear? What, What do you fear? And a good question would be, why? You need to answer the question of why. Why do you live in fear of fill in the blank? What's behind that? What's underneath that for you? If God is God and he is glorious and he is, how would that truth affect your fears? How would fearing God rightly change the way you live? How would the fear of God governing all that you do affect the way you live? How would it affect your interactions with people? How would it, 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 it affect the, the way that you treat people? How would it affect your view of the church, of evangelism, of this life? The second component we find in verse 7 is to turn away from evil. Proverbs 14, 6 says, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Again, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6, by, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When Solomon says turn here, he, this word means to turn aside. It's, you actually can see this in, in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses is walking... And Exodus chapter 3, verse 3, says that Moses turned aside to see this great sight. The great sight was the burning bush. So Moses was on his way, and he has a change happen, right? Something happens. There's, there's a turning that happens in his life. This, verse, this word also carries with it the idea of abolish, or to depart, or remove, or change, If you can just imagine yourself walking down a road or or living a certain way and a change of direction in your course happens. I think about the Apostle Paul for a biblical example. On his way, literally on a road to Damascus, and, and there's a change that comes in his life. Something happens. Something happens in his life and he changes course. And he recognizes who God is in that moment when he says, is that you, Lord? Right? That's fear of the Lord, recognizing who God is. What do you want me to do? And then he obeys, turns from evil. It's a, a, a beautiful example of what Solomon is exactly saying here. The Bible is replete with the call to turn away from sin. But the problem is, is that proud people have no fear of God. 
That's what pride does. Pride makes us think we're better than we are. Pride deceives us. Pride makes us think that we're God, that, that we can call the shots. And because we have no fear of God, we don't turn from evil. Instead, we engage in it. This is the opposite of trusting God. It's doing it your way. It's trusting yourself. It's being wise in your own eyes. Solomon is expressing here in chapter three what life lived best looks like. He's telling us that this trust in God leads to God making straight your paths. He's telling us that, that the, the way, the way to, to blessing is to fear him and to turn from evil. Psalm is telling us how to act wisely toward God. So we can understand that, that a wise person turns away from sin and wickedness. That they trust in the Lord for who he is because of who he is. They see sin because they see God. They fear God because they see God's holiness. It's been said, the closer the closer you are to God, the more clearly you will see your sin. Conversely, the further we are from God, the more we are prone to think ourselves better off than we are. The closer you get to God, the more you see how far you are from God. But as we grow away from God, as we might live in, in habits of, of sin, we begin to deceive our own self about where we are at spiritually. What you need, what I need, what we all need is an understanding of the holiness of God. You want to pray for someone? Pray that they would understand the holiness of God. So that sounds like a Bible thing. But listen, you'll never see your sin until you see God's holiness because you're going to be judging yourself against the other person. And that's real easy to say I'm better than you because I can pick out all the things that I know about you that I'm better. It doesn't matter that that's not true. I can deceive myself. But if I know the holiness of God, there's, there's no deviation there. There's no, there's no interpretation of any wrongdoing. So I can't say, well, God's, uh, I still kind of measure up. No, 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 you don't measure up. What we all so desperately need is a view of God's holiness. It's what Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Can you imagine? And I said, woe is me, Isaiah speaking, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of unclean lips. My, li my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Verse eight, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to your people, 
and he tells him what to say. Isaiah had a, had a moment that you and I won't have in this format. But what Isaiah got to see was a recognition of who God is and who he was. God in grace has done for us not what he did for Isaiah, but he did something better. He sent his very own son to come. God, God, the person of God came to earth. Isaiah saw, saw a vision. Jesus actually came in person. And he came to this earth to be all the things that God is and that we could never be. What you and I so desperately need is to see the holiness of God. We can see it in the face of Jesus. There's a close connection here with fearing the Lord and turning from evil. He uses these two phrases, but they're actually connected. We see it elsewhere in the scriptures. In Job chapter 1, it says of Job that he feared the Lord and turned away from evil. And the word turned away there in the old King James, if some of you might have that, is the word eschew. Not a common word that we use, but, but it means to turn. It means that, that Job didn't want to be in the presence of sin, that it made him sick to be in the presence of sin, that he turned away from it. Later in Job, Job chapter 28, it says this, and he said to, to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. They're connected. Charles Bridges says it helpfully this way. Where God is honored, sin is hated, loathed and resisted. Where God is honored or where God is feared, sin is hated, loathed, and resisted. Equally, we could say, where sin is honored, God is hated, loathed, and resisted. Our lack of fear precedes our disobedience. The reason that we disobey is because we don't fear God. And our disobedience then portrays our self-trust. These three ideas of, of humility, of fear, and of turning are all connected. Whereas in the presence of godly fear, sin is resisted, forsaken, which displays our trust in God. So the question for you is, what do you need to turn away from? Are there any besetting sins in your life, even right now? And you ought to know the besetting sins in your life. You ought to be able to list them because you ought to be praying about them. No one is perfect here. Pastor, we're going to say this frequently, and I love it, and I'll say it frequently. That God is not looking for perfection, he's looking for progress. Because guess what? Perfection is not coming in this life. So God is looking for progress. So how, how are we progressing? How are we growing? We need to know what areas of life you struggle with. And what are you doing about those things? A friend of mine wrote a book. And in that book, he, he, quote, he says this. Here's a quote. Your attitude towards sin is directly proportionate to the time spent reveling in the good news of Christ. I'll say that again. 
your attitude towards sin is directly proportionate to your time spent reveling in the good news of Christ. Which means if you spend no time thinking about the good news of Jesus, then your view of sin, your attitude of sin will be proportionally lacking. The key to seeing sin rightly is to see God rightly. The key to turning from sin is to know God. As we've said before, Solomon in this section of scripture is giving these two verse couplets. He's giving us an instruction, counsel, and then an outcome or an incentive. And in verse eight, we find the incentive. The incentive is that it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Here's the incentive. If if you follow God in this way, the incentive is healing and refreshment to your bones. This is the expectation of blessing from God. Fearing the Lord, turning from sin brings healing and refreshment. What are we saying? We're saying that the physical and the spiritual are connected. Physical and spiritual health are connected. Let me explain that. Psalm chapter 32, David, living in sin, says this. For when I kept silent, which means I didn't repent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. What what is he suggesting there? He's suggesting that his body actually had the effects of his spiritual life. Meaning this, sin brings consequences. Now, some of us might want to push back on what Proverbs 8 is saying there. Because we know other things, don't we? So we're not going to press this too far because we look further in the Bible, we find that good people, godly people, people who are following God, didn't have great lives. They had suffering. They had pain. Jesus was murdered. The point, though, is this. The road of disobedience, excuse me, the road of obedience, that is fearing God and turning from sin, yields blessings that the road of disobedience does not. As we close, Proverbs is meant to be read and understood in its original context and meaning. And we've tried to do that this morning. Yet to leave it right there misses the greater context of the Bible. Which means you, you and I need to see the Bible not only in its immediate context, the book, but its greater context, the whole Bible. So if all you do is read Proverbs and hear these, these one-liners or these two verses, or you get a little bit further and you get into the, the literally the, the one-line Proverbs, anybody can believe those things. You can pull those things out and you can, you can run those all over the world and people will believe it. What we actually need to understand is the greater context of the entire Bible, namely how Christ affects this. You see, we are all called to fear God and turn from sin. That's absolutely true. This is how we display our trust. But if we're honest, and we want to be honest, right? We know that we don't fear God the way we ought to. You know that. You know that you live a lot of your life not fearing God, fearing man more than God. You know that there are decisions that you're making that have nothing to do with with what God thinks about that. Not only that, but we all too often don't turn away from evil either. That we join in, small ways and big ways. 
And in this way, we sin. In this way, we are not following the command of God. We could never do it. We could never do it sufficiently. We could never do it wholly. We could never do it completely. So when we read these verses, we say, yeah, I need to do that, but I can't do that. I'm a failure at it. And if you, if you would even admit that this morning, you're in the greatest place to receive the next part of this. And that's this. But thanks be to God that there is one. There's one who did fear God. He feared God all the way to the garden when he said, not my will, but yours be done. What you want is, is better than what I want. I'm going to get in alignment with your will. He did it perfectly. And there's one who not only turned away from evil, which he did over and over again, t- temptation in the wilderness, but not only did he turn away, but he actually paid for our evil. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that he's the, the substitution for you and for me. So now, those who are in Christ, those who have come to Christ by grace through faith, can enjoy the perfection of Christ. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21 talks about this great exchange where what Jesus came to do was he came to take on your unrighteousness and give to you or impute to you, transact to you his righteousness so that God now sees the one who has trusted him by faith through Jesus. That's what Jesus has done. So Christian, today you don't stand, you don't stand in your obedience you don't stand before God because you fear him real good or you've turned real good away. No, no, you stand because Jesus did all this perfectly. But the one who understands that doesn't say, oh, great, I don't have to do anything anymore. No, no, no. The one who understands that also understands that God in grace has enabled you now through his spirit to live in fear, to follow him in obedience with the strength that he has provided. That's what makes this Christian. You know, we could preach Proverbs chapter three and never mention Jesus. Do you know that people can preach the Bible and never mention Jesus? Proverbs three doesn't, doesn't have Jesus. We, Jesus' name is not there. Do you know what makes something Christian? Christ makes it Christian. So men can preach sermons from the Bible and they're not Christian sermons because they're not about Jesus. And if all we do today is say, go fear God and turn away from evil, we're we're pointing you to to a hopeless situation. You'll fail before you get to your car. You need something better. You need something greater. You need better news. And Jesus is the better news. Jesus is the one who's already done it. So now he enables you to do it. Now, if you're here with us this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're prone to think that that God is someone to be afraid of. But the Bible wants to invite you to, to know this, that he is a gracious forgiver. He is a welcoming father. He is a prodigal God. Some of us might read these words and think, man, I just have not measured up. Not measured up to that wisdom. 
we want you to know that Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. He came not to condemn, but to save. He came not to cast away, but to reconcile. He came not to put you out, but to welcome you in. That's what the Bible is saying this morning to you. That the Proverbs is calling you to a better life, but that better life can only be found in the person in the work of Jesus. So come to him today. If you recognize your need for him, come to him today. We're inviting you to do that. Admitting that you're, you're in need. Admitting that you're weak and sinful. But you recognize that you're loved and accepted in Christ. Seeing that Jesus has paid the debt that you owed. He bore your punishment and is now offering you forgiveness. As we turn from our sins, as we repent and believe. And if that's you today, and you've, you, you talk to the Lord in, in those words and those kind of words this morning, we, we would love to pray with you. If you have more questions about that, we would love to pray with you. For the rest of us, let me just ask you this simple question. What if these were your life objectives? To fear God and turn away from sin. To run to God, to run from evil. Let's pray. Oh God, we recognize this morning that we are not as we should be. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we might feel overwhelmed but the reality that we don't measure up. But God, in those moments, we're at the, the, the exact spot you want us to be to recognize that we can never do it on our own. And that is the exact reason that Jesus came. Because we were in need. So God, I pray that you would help us this morning to turn our eyes to you, to see Jesus, and to see his glory. In whose name we pray, amen.